How much is loving others a motivating factor in your life? It's not a question you want to begin with, is it? And it may be before we answer the question, we need to define the kind of love we're talking about. You know, after all, love is a word that's confusing at the best of times. We use it too much, right? We use it to speak about things and people and desires. Uh, we use it to speak about hobbies and preferences and brand names. We use it to talk about movies and sports teams and our favorite restaurants. Sometimes we use the word love to get out of trouble. I love you, Daddy. Sometimes we use it to get what we want. There are more books and movies and music written about love than any other topic, but still most people have a hard time defining it. Now maybe love is a whole because most people think it's something they can fall into. Maybe love is a window because lots of people think they can fall out of it. I know I'm kind of being silly here, but I'm no sillier than those who think that we can fall into or out of love like love is something we have no control over. The idea behind the popular phrase, the heart wants what the heart wants. How's that for a bit of wisdom to live by? You know, that's, that's the whole thought behind it. It's like the person is saying, I have no choice in the matter. People say, we must follow our hearts. Like, impulse and lust are better foundations for relational happiness than loyalty and commitment. I could start a rant here, but I'm not going to. <laughs> As Christians, we should have a better idea of what the word love means. Because... Love stands at the center of the Christian faith, and love is demonstrated for us clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. John 3.16, we all know this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 1 John 4.8, we know this just as well. It goes even further. It says God is love. God is the embodiment of love. He's the source of love. At least he's the source of the kind and the quality of, of love that we're speaking about today. You see, there are different types of love. There's the romantic, desire-driven kind of love that our, our world seems to be obsessed with. It's the mushy, gushy, ooey-gooey kind of love that, that is both exciting and often elusive and short-lived. Then there's the kind of love that's driven by mutual interests and goals. It's the kind of love that, that we enjoy in our friendships. It's also, there's also another kind of love though. And it's a particular kind of love. It's a particular kind of love that we as Christians are expected to demonstrate in our lives. It's the specific kind of love that, that's displayed by God himself. And when the Bible tells us to love one another, it's this kind of a divine love that it's talking about. In the New Testament, whenever the Bible speaks about this kind of love, it uses the word agape. Most of you probably have heard this word. It might be the only Greek word that you know. But before we go any further, let me clearly point out to you how strongly the New Testament emphasizes the importance of Christians exhibiting this kind of love. 
In 1 John 3.14, John declares, We know that we've passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Think about what this verse is saying. Kind of startling when you start to think about it. John wants his readers to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they possess eternal life. He wants them to know that they have new life coursing through their veins. He wants them to have a full confidence of their salvation. It's a good thing to know, don't you think? But how can you really know? How can you know that you've got the life that Yahweh gives through Christ? John tells us that it's when you see the evidence of the kind of love that only God can produce in your life. John says, we know that we've passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. What does this mean? It means that Christian love is a matter of life and death. It's as serious as that. It's what proves that you've passed from death to life. Now let's go back to the fruit metaphor for a moment. How do you know that a fruit tree is alive? You look at the buds, the leaves, the fruit. The fruit is the evidence that the tree has, has life within it. Where there is fruit, there's life. But if there's no fruit, the tree may be dead or at least dying, right? Well, how do you know if you're a believer or, or your church is alive? You look for agape love. Where there's love, there's life. When, when Christians truly love and they truly put love into practice, it's evidence that the life of God is present among them and in them. But when we don't put love into practice, when we, we fight and squabble and divide and denounce each other, well, what does that say about us? If there's no love, says John, we have not come to life at all. We remain in death. Love and life. Love is a life and death thing for us. Let's look at 1 John 3.23. And this is his command. To believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and to love one another as he commands us. If you've ever read the book of James, you'll know that James connects faith and good deeds together. Makes them inseparable. James says, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. John would have agreed with that, of course, as would have Paul. But here in 1 John, John connects faith and love in the way that makes them just as inseparable as faith and good deeds. Notice that John says of Yahweh, this is his command, singular but then he goes on to state two things. We are commanded not only to believe in the name of Yahweh's Son, Jesus Christ, but also to love one another. And together these are one integrated, inseparable command. The implication is clear. If you do the first, you'll do the second. 
right? And if you aren't doing the second, you aren't doing the first. We are not to separate them. We are, they are both the single command of God, believing in Jesus and loving one another. One command. They go together. They're incomplete and lacking without each other. They're two sides of the same coin. So love for one another is not only evidence of the life of God within us, it's also the evidence of the faith through which we've received that life in the first place. If it's well with our cultivating series on the fruit of the Spirit, because the first aspect of the fruit of the Spirit is love. It is this divine agape love specific to followers of Christ. And it's clearly fruit birthed by the Holy Spirit. It's, it's nothing we can produce on our own. It's both evidence of God's life within us and also evidence of the faith that brought us to life through Christ in the first place. Let me remind you of our series text again. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. The fact that Paul begins with love as the first aspect of the fruit of the Spirit isn't surprising. You know, after all, he's already made the point that uh, what really matters is faith expressing itself through love. Galatians 5, 6. And that we should be serving one another humbly in love. 5, 6, 13. And, and the whole Old Testament law is summed up in the command, love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 5, 14. In putting love first, Paul is echoing Jesus when Jesus declares, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus lays the foundation for the kind of love that Paul's referring to in this passage. It's the second kind of love. Neighbor love. That Paul is referring to as this first aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, the kind of love that Paul's focusing on in this text isn't so much our love for God. It is the love for one another that we have as Christians. It's the kind of love that overcomes our differences and removes all barriers. It's the kind of love that isn't just sentimental feelings or, or being nice. It's real practical displays that prove we love and accept one another. In down-to-earth, caring, providing, helping, encouraging, and supporting ways. Even when it costs us to do so. It, it's a Christ-like love. Now, as I've already mentioned, we, we've talked about the fruit of the Spirit being not the fruits of the Spirit. It's a singular thing, the fruit. What that means is, first of all, all nine character qualities should be considered as a unit. Collectively, they are the fruit of the Spirit. Think of them like a cluster of, a cluster of grapes. What this means is that we're to bear all of these characteristics in our lives, not just a few of them. You know, we're not in a produce aisle just picking our favorites. 
All these qualities together comprise a mature Christ-like character. So we can't be satisfied that we're doing well with joy and peace if we have the patience of a young child on Christmas morning. Neither can we be happy with the fact that we excel at self-control if we have the gentleness of an MMA fighter in a cage match. The fruit are a unit. Secondly, you might be able to better understand the collective nature of the fruit if you remember that, that love is the source of all the other fruit. Out of God's divine agape love comes joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Listen to these words from Paul in Colossians chapter 3. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Notice the similarity of qualities found in this passage in Colossians with the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. Notice also that love binds all of these characteristics together. Another way we could phrase it is that the fruit of the Spirit could be described as eight characteristics of life lived in love. Or we could think of love as light. What happens when light passes through a prism? You know, we normally see as what we normally see as white light is, is broken into the spectrum of colors that actually make it up, right? These colors combine to make the white light. They aren't added to the light. They're the light in fullness. Well, well the kind of divine love that God cultivates in our lives through the Holy Spirit is the love that has joy and peace and goodness and kindness and so on. They all come together in this quality of Christian love that we're to have. Okay, so we know some of the characteristics of agape love, but but what does this kind of love really look like? Well, the best way to answer that question is to to look at Yahweh, right? After all, he is love. So, So what is God's love like? Well, God's love is first of all undeserved. We don't don't deserve God's love. But he gives it to us anyway. Paul in Romans 5, 8 says, But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Peter 3, 18, Peter makes this comment. He says, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. What have we got to do to make God, what do, you, what do you have to do to make God love you? How do you earn God's love? You don't. You already have it. It's a done deal. God demonstrated it. He revealed it already. God showed his love for you through Christ's sacrifice before you ever did anything for him. 
In my case, I didn't become a Christian until I was in my early 20s. And before I was a Christian, I ignored God and I enjoyed mocking Christians that I worked with. But even then, God loved me. Even then, he had already demonstrated his love for me. I had the choice to accept or reject God's love, but there was nothing I could do to earn it. That's the kind of love God has for us. It's real. The Apostle John in in 1 John 4.10 puts it this way. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. God's love for us wasn't dependent on us returning his love. He loved us first. He took care of the problem of our sin so that we could know and love him in return. But he did it before we did anything. The love we receive from God is totally undeserved. Secondly, it's unwavering. It's steadfast. It's dedicated. It's resolute. Because God loves us, whether we love him or or not, there's nothing we can do to stop him from loving us. There's nothing we can do to, to stop him from loving us. Let that sink in. I don't know if we really believe that. We can separate ourselves from God, but we can't stop him from loving us. No matter what happens, God loves, love remains deep and sure and constant towards us. Paul in Romans 8, beginning verse 31, says, As a result, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. I'm not sure how you can be more than a conqueror, but we are. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. God's love is unwavering. It's constant. We can choose whether we receive it or not. But it's there. It's there. It's always available to us. As long as we have breath in our bodies, it's available. 
We just need to turn to him and avail ourselves of it. Next, we see that God's love is also unselfish. Kind of goes without saying, doesn't it? You know, if God's love, if he's loved us before we've loved him, if, if God demonstrated his love while we were still his enemies, if God's love is unwavering, no matter what we do, then obviously God's love isn't motivated by what he's going to get out of the deal. I think it's fair to say that we've got the better side of the deal. Now think about the kind of relationships that are common today. A lot of people see love and marriage like a contract to deliver goods. Love is becoming like Amazon, right? They walk into a relationship with expectations of of what they're going to get out of marriage. And they'll stay in the relationship as long as they get what they want. But as soon as the other person stops delivering, the marriage breaks up and people start looking for a new supplier. It's a sad fact of life that in our broken world, many people never experience anything but selfish love. What a tragedy. But God's love for us is sacrificial, not selfish. It cost him what was most precious to him. Paul puts it this way in in Ephesians 5.2. He reminds us that, that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Rather than loving to gain, Jesus' love gave. In love, he gave everything, including himself. God's love is a sacrificial love. It's it's the complete opposite to selfish love. And next we see God's love is unlimited. By that I mean, he doesn't restrict his love. He doesn't keep his love from anyone. He doesn't choose to love you and then turn around and decide to hate me. Even though I give him lots of reasons to, to do that. He doesn't pick favorites. Matthew 5, 43 to 48, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Not even pagan, or do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. God doesn't play favorites. He even loves his enemies, which is a good thing because we were all his enemies. He he excludes no one from his love. We may exclude ourselves from his love by not giving ourselves to Jesus, but God doesn't exclude us. He makes his love available to everyone. Finally, God's love is active. He initiates. He gets involved. He does stuff for us. Right? 
His love motivates him to do things. John in 1 John 3:16 to 18 says, "This is how we know what God what know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. How do we know God loves us? We, we know Yahweh loves us through his activities. God's love motivates him to do something about our condition. Now, because we've all sinned, it was impossible for us to know and experience God's love through a relationship with him. His perfection and holiness made, made it necessary for him to limit contact with us. But God's love solved the problem. He came to us. He reached out to us. He took care of the problem of sin so that we could know and feel his love. Jesus died for our sins so that our sins could be removed and then we could have access to God, a relationship with God, so that we could see his activity at work in our lives as acts of divine love. John's conclusion is straightforward. He says, if you want to love like God, you need to love with actions and truth. Your love must be expressed in action. Remember what Paul says in Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. He did something. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated his love through action. He demonstrated it through sacrifice. So, what is our definition of agape love? Agape love is a love that loves even when it isn't earned or deserved. It's a love that's unselfish. Unselfishly given, regardless of the response or the situation. Because of this, agape love is also constant and it's unwavering. It's a choice we make. It's an action we take. So let me ask you a question. Given this description of Christian love, how much agape love are you bearing in your life right now? Are you able to love even when you aren't loved back? Think about it. Maybe you don't have to think about it. Are you able to keep loving even when your love isn't appreciated? Oh. <sighs> Can you say that your love is unselfish? Are you able to love and pray for your enemies? Is your love all about words or is it demonstrated by what you do? Right now, you're probably either saying to yourself, gee, Grant, thanks for making me feel like a loser. Or maybe you're saying, this kind of love is impossible, so why even bother trying? Well, before you walk out of here depressed and frustrated, let me remind you that you're supposed to love me even when I make you feel like a loser, not a lover. <laughs> Having said that, let me point out a couple of things before we close. First, 
If you're feeling like this kind of love is impossible, you're absolutely right. Agape love is impossible for us to demonstrate without God's help. It's fruit, remember? Remember that John reminds us that the kind of love, this kind of love is actually evidence of God's working in our lives. It's evidence of our faith. Outside of God working in our life, outside of faith in Christ, this kind of love just doesn't happen. At least not consistently. Agape love is impossible for us to accomplish on our own, but it's possible if we abide in the vine that is Christ. Then we can bear fruit. Apart from him, we can bear no fruit, but in him we can. In Romans 5, 5, Paul tells us, And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. God has poured out his love in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. God's agape love is already within us if we're in Christ. Therefore, we have hope. In fact, we have the kind of hope that doesn't disappoint The love that's impossible by human standards is possible for Christians. Because God has poured agape love into us. His love for us enables us to love like him. Next week we're going to continue with with our look at love. But let me leave you with one last thought. In, In John 3, 19 and 20. 1 John 3, 19 and 20. John makes this important statement. He says, This then is how we know that we belong to the truth. He's still trying to convince people of their faith. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth. And how we set our hearts at rest. At rest. In his presence. How to be at rest in his presence. Whenever our hearts condemn us. What? How can we be at rest at his presence when our hearts condemn us? God is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything. What does that mean? Has your heart ever condemned you? If you're like me, probably right now. You're probably thinking about how far you are from loving the way that God's called you to love. Sometimes thoughts like these are realistic and helpful because they humble us and they help us to depend on God even more as our source of change. Thoughts like these are okay because they show us that we're sensitive to God and and we're desiring to grow. I came across this quote from Scott Saul this week. I love this quote and underlines this truth. He says, ironically, the more like Jesus we actually become, the more unlike Jesus we realize that we are. Think about it. But at the same time, you also need to recognize that God is greater than your heart. He knows everything. What does this mean? It means that he knows our weaknesses and he knows our struggles. He knows our intentions, even when our intentions don't become actions. He knows what we want to become, even though we haven't become it yet. More importantly, he knows what we will become. We see our failures. 
He sees our faithfulness. We see our shortcomings. He sees our homecoming. God has far more confidence in you than you have in yourself. He can afford to, after all, because he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. But more important than that, if there is something more important than that, his love for us is perfect in patience. It's kindness, it's perfect in its kindness and its gentleness. And God is greater than our hearts. His love... goes beyond what we deserve. His love, he loves us with an unwavering commitment that will never change. He, he loves us in a way that isn't selfish or limited. His love is guaranteed to be demonstrated in our lives time and time and time and time and time again. God is greater than our hearts, so give him your failures. Admit how much you fall short of loving as he is loved. And ask him for his help. He'll give it to you. That's just the kind of loving God he is. Worship team.